Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, the book of Romans, chapters 14 and 15. In Romans chapter 14, we again encountered an issue that simply won't go away. The issue of kosher eating. Thus in verse 14 of chapter 14, we read this. I know, that is, I have been persuaded by the Lord Yeshua the Messiah that nothing is unclean in itself, but if a person considers something unclean, then for him it's unclean. Now, although Western Gentile Christianity has tried to solve the matter by declaring simply and succinctly that the Levitical dietary laws have been abolished for Christians, some clever reconstruction of certain New Testament passages was needed to try to validate that questionable position. So when we look at the oldest New Testament manuscripts ever found, all of them in Greek, we find discrepancies from what we find in most English Bible versions when it comes to God's dietary laws. Interestingly, the King James Version tends to stay more true to the original Greek in its rendering of words concerning eating and diet. So sometimes it tells a different story. But not always. I want to give you an example. In the King James Version of Acts 10, 11-15, we read this. And Peter saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descended unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. And wherein were all <clears throat> manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, thou call not that thou uh, that call not thou common. Now notice in this passage in Acts that the word common in English is used to describe something that Peter said should never be eaten. And that God said that Peter should not call common what God has cleansed. Now you're not going to find the word common in most standard English Bible translations or in the complete Jewish Bible for that matter. Instead the word unclean is plugged in and used. So why the discrepancy? It's because the Greek word that is translated common in the King James Version, but unclean in almost all English translations, is koinos. However, koinos means ordinary and common. Just look it up in a lexicon. It means ordinary and common. It doesn't mean unclean. There is a separate Greek word that means unclean, and it's Akathartos. Akathartos is not used here. So why, when it comes to the discussion of food, of food, do English Bible translations change the meaning of koinos from common to unclean? Clearly it's because a certain doctrinal agenda is being taught that doesn't necessarily agree with the plain scripture reading. So some adjustments to the scriptures had to be made to make the words fit the doctrine that kosher eating has been abolished for Christians. So what does common mean when it applies to food? What does that mean? What's common food? Now before we delve into that, <clears throat> I want to throw out a question I'm sure many of you have been asking for a while, maybe again at this moment. Why does Tom Bradford address the issue of kosher eating so regularly? It's because I have noticed 
that within Western culture, especially within Western Christianity, the issues of dietary restrictions and Sabbath are among the most difficult to deal with. It isn't that hard for Westerners to understand and obey God's biblical moral standards that makes murder and stealing and lying wrong. However, we simply don't like the idea of being told what we can eat and what we can't. Or what day we ought to set aside to cease our regular work or if we're even obligated to do that and what we can do and can't do on a Sabbath. Somehow these concepts of a God-designated day of rest and of God regulating our food such that some foods are permissible, some are prohibited, this just goes against our values of individualism and personal choice. After many decades of my life and my personal experience with God, I have learned a valuable lesson. It is that those areas in our life in which we demand that God keeps his hands off, these are the ones he may well meddle in the most. Why? Because it's for our benefit. Obedience to Him in all areas of our life is the forgotten element in our relationship with the Lord in modern Christianity. Now as much as I love democracy, the kingdom of heaven is not democratic. God is not the president of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a theocracy with but one absolute ruler who established himself as that ruler, Jehovah God. We don't get to vote in our relationship with God. We have no right, there is no mechanism to establish new divine rules nor to abolish old ones. He gives us no options when it comes to morality, although he gives us wide latitude in matters of preference. God has made eating and Sabbath matters matters of the law. So, they are moral issues, not issues of personal preference. He has made clear rules and regulations about what we should eat and what we should not eat and about what day are we to, what day were to set apart as holy and different from all other days of the week. He didn't say, here's seven, choose one. Therefore, I want to be clear. Is it wrong to disobey God's laws concerning diet and Sabbath? Yes, it is. Is it sin to disregard God's regulations about what we eat and what day we set aside as a day of rest? Yes, it is. And I can tell you from personal experience, and I, by the way, I've heard this from many believers, that after you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, after, then you make the decision to obey God in all areas of your life, including your diet and Sabbath, an entire new world of intimacy and relationship with the Lord opens up. Why? It's very simple. Obedience is God's love language. It's an oxymoron to say you love God, but in the same breath make it clear you're not going to obey Him in certain areas of your life and lifestyle that you wish to continue to control according to your own standard. As I pointed out before, God originally gave, gave Adam and Eve just one rule. 
Interestingly, that rule concerned their diet. They could eat everything God gave them for food except the fruit from one particular tree. The scriptures acknowledge, by the way, that that fruit was edible, it was beautiful, it was tasty. Nothing wrong with that fruit as far as food. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal which Adonai God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman answered the serpent, No, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you are neither to eat it nor touch it or you'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, It's not true that you'll surely die. Because God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it had a pleasing appearance. The tree was desirable for making one wise. She took some of the fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. See, the very first law God ever gave to mankind, he gave it to them in the Garden of Eden <laughs> before there was a law of Moses or even a Hebrew to obey it. And what did it concern? Food. What we eat matters to God since creation. And since it matters to God, naturally Satan is going to interfere. He's going to try to get us to go against what the Lord wants. It rubbed Eve the wrong way that God had the gall to restrict her from that gorgeous fruit. It must have seemed pointless, unreasonable. Because of our inborn evil inclinations, we carry with us that same attitude about food that Adam and Eve had. We demand total freedom to choose as we please. If we like the taste and it doesn't harm us physically, then we feel as though we should have the right to eat it. And I'll tell you, just because some early church fathers were deceived, and because the church in general remains deceived on this matter, doesn't mean you have to be. Now remember, the rules for kosher eating are found in the Holy Scriptures, primarily in Leviticus chapter 11. And they don't amount to a great deal. The food rules that Judaism follows includes much more than God requires. And even Yeshua himself railed about those extra rules. So this is why I speak so regularly about kosher eating and about the Sabbath. So back to the issue of what common means as it applies to food. See, it's important to understand that in the Torah, the term common, koinos, is not used in reference to food. Food is basically divided into two categories, permitted and prohibited. Then, the permitted food is divided into two categories, ritually clean and ritually unclean. So the use of the term common by Paul, man, it creates a real challenge in trying to discern what he means by it. Now surely it doesn't mean unclean because there was an everyday Greek word for unclean that we rarely find used in the Bible. My best educated guess is that because the synagogue 
and Judaism had taken firm hold in the lives of Jews even well before Paul's day, certain terms had their meanings altered to reflect the conditions of the times. I think common might be one of those altered terms and it reflects the difficulties of proper eating for the vast bulk of Jews who lived among millions of Gentiles in a predominantly Gentile world. I also think that in the New Testament era the word common referred to food probably mainly meat that it is on the permissible food list as found in the Torah but because Jews in the diaspora most often, more often than not had no hand in raising, butchering, handling their food they could never be fully sure if it was done according to God's laws. If any of that was done improperly it would render the food unclean. And depending on how pious a diaspora Jew was, the details of the food handling were either extremely important or not that important at all. Thus for many Jews they ate only vegetables so that kosher issues were removed. And they could be certain that they ate nothing that they shouldn't. Okay, let's pause now and reread the last several verses of Romans chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 14 and move to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, you'll find this on page 1418. 1418. Starting at verse 14. I know, that is, I have been persuaded by the Lord Yeshua the Messiah that nothing is unclean in itself. But if a person considers something unclean, that for him it is unclean. And if your brother is being upset by the food you eat, your life's no longer one of love. Do not, by your eating habits, destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. Do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as bad. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves the Messiah in this fashion both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. So then, let us pursue the things that make for shalom and mutual upbuilding. Don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. True enough, all things are clean, but it is wrong for anybody by his eating to cause someone to fall away. What is good is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The belief you hold about such things keep between yourself and God. Happy the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of something. But the doubter comes under condemnation if he eats because his action is not based on trust. Anything not based on trust is a sin. We've discussed verse 14 with the pertinent info being that the word unclean does not actually appear here. However, the principle Paul speaks of, of nothing is common of itself, means no food, means that food has no intrinsic condition. In other words, no food is automatically created holy. No food is automatically created common. No food is automatically created unclean because of its chemical makeup. Pig meat doesn't have some evil genetic quality about it that makes it prohibited for food. While cow meat has some good genetic quality about it that makes it permissible for food. Rather, the issue is obedience by God's worshipers to whatever it is the Lord ordains. Obedience. Now, this fact was long recognized by the rabbis. And I'd like to quote to you a rather interesting narrative taken from the basic Tad de Rab Kahana, which was created probably early in the 5th century 
is essentially a series of Jewish religious homilies. Listen to this little story. tells you a lot. A heathen questioned Rabban Johanan ben Sakai, saying, The things you Jews do appear to be a kind of sorcery. A heifer is brought. It's burned. It's pounded into ash, and its ashes are gathered up. Then, when one of you gets defiled by contact with a corpse, two or three drops of the ash mixed with water are sprinkled upon him, and he's told, You are cleansed. And Rabban Johanan asked the heathen, Has the spirit of madness ever possessed you? And he replied, No. He said, Have you ever seen a man whom the spirit of madness has, madness has possessed? And the heathen replied, Yes. He said, So what do you do for such a man? And the heathen said, Well, roots are brought. The smoke of their burning is made to rise all about him. Water is sprinkled upon him until the spirit of madness flees. And Rabban Johanad then said, Don't your ears hear what your mouth is saying? It is the same with a man who is defiled by contact with a corpse. He too is possessed by a spirit, the spirit of uncleanness, and as of madness, scripture says, I will cause false prophets as well as the spirit of uncleanness to, free from, to flee from the land. Now when the heathen left, Rabban Johanan's disciples said, Our master, you put off that heathen with a mere reed of an answer, but what answer will you give to us? And Rabban Johanan answered, By your lives I swear this, the corpse does not have the power by itself to defile, nor does that mixture of ash and water have the power by itself to cleanse. The truth is that the purifying power of the red heifer is a decree of the Holy One. The Holy One said, I have set it down as a statute. I have issued it as a decree. You are not permitted to transgress my decree. This is the statute of the Torah. Do you see this? It's obedience. It's not in the ashes. It's not in the water. It's not in the kind of meat. It's not in any of it. It's because God ordained it. So holiness, commonness, uncleanness, they have nothing to do with the substance of the object or of the creature. They only gain such status as the Lord deems it. And if, as says Rabban Johanan, God says pig meat is not food for you, then it isn't. If God says chicken is good food for you, then it is. There's nothing more to it than that. However, as much as we humans might question, well, why is pork forbidden? But chicken is permitted. On the other hand, we have no right to do anything about it except to obey. See, here in Romans 14, 14, the issue is the commonness of some kind of edible item, thus meaning, according to Paul, that commonness means it shouldn't be eaten as food. But interestingly, the rationale and the point for Paul's injunction about food has less to do with obedience to the Torah, much more to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul's injunction is we are to respect the other person's stance on such matters and not make a bone of contention about it that causes division. He is in no way saying, oh, it just doesn't matter. He didn't say that. But 
but rather the matter is up to God. Not up to a fellow believer to judge that person for not obeying the kosher food laws. But now notice verse 15. Take a peek at it. Look at verse 15. See, it, it continues the subject by speaking of your brother, your fellow believer, being upset by the choice of food that you eat. Thus, by eating food that you know upsets your fellow believer, and I'm assuming this means eating it in the presence of your fellow believer, you are going against the fundamental principle of loving your neighbor. Who is Paul speaking to about this in his letter? Most often it is said that this is aimed at believing Jews for being especially rigid about food by maintaining kosher eating standards and thus we see Gentile uh, th thus when Gentiles see them eat a restricted diet well then it upsets the Gentiles but that's exactly the opposite of what the words actually say in fact simple logic asks why would Gentiles be upset with what with Jews because Jews eat only certain foods why would that upset a Gentile? So it's not an issue of what Jews eat, but what they don't eat. Further, nothing a Jew eats, nothing a Jew eats would upset a Gentile. Even if that Gentile thinks the restrictions don't apply to him. Rather, the upset occurs when it is, a, when it is Gentile believers who, who eat things that believing Jews consider common or unclean, thus forbidden, that's the issue. It is Gentiles Paul is admonishing by saying that what they eat may be upsetting their brothers in Christ who are Jews who eat kosher. So says Paul in verse 15, Gentiles don't let your unrestricted eating habits of eating things that upset those who eat only kosher destroy someone for whom the Messiah died that is another believer now to destroy in this context simply means to offend thus Gentiles should honor Jews convictions by eating kosher in their presence in order to show them respect and not offending them. Now one can only imagine the contentious issues of diet when Gentile believers first began to be saved and then especially at first they were all joining Jewish synagogues. Well verse 16 now is a bit cryptic but here's how we ought to take it. Paul is talking to those on one side of the issue in verse 15 and then to those on the other side of the issue in verse 16. So to paraphrase, these two verses help us to understand a certain principle. So let's try this as a way to, to say it. I'm going to paraphrase it. On the one hand, don't let your eating habits, Gentiles, offend fellow believers, Jew or Gentile, who eat kosher. But, on the other hand, kosher eaters, don't let your devotion to eating kosher, which is a good thing, be turned into a bad thing by demanding that your fellow believer eat kosher because if you do that, you are violating the overriding principle of love your neighbor. And then in verse 17, Paul says, this is the case because the kingdom of God is not based on wooden mechanical instructions about what you eat, what you drink, such that it should cause division among believers. Rather, the kingdom of God is based on the righteousness, peace, and joy that is given to us by means of the Holy Spirit. 
So here is the application for us in modern times. Yes, believers, God does instruct us to eat kosher. But if you just don't have the Holy Spirit in you, and if you don't feel any conviction to follow God's dietary laws, and by the way, do not think that I'm saying that not eating kosher means you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not what I mean. But then you just go ahead and you eat kosher anyway. It's pointless. If your heart's not in it, it's just pointless. And especially so if you do it just kind of as an outward show. At the same time, if you are saved and you do have the conviction to obey God's dietary laws, then not only should you do so, but you should not judge or ostracize other believers who have not come to that same conviction. Why is this? Because the Spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery to the law. It's one of devotion to the law out of love and gratitude for the law's creator. Thus, while I fully believe that following God's dietary laws are for all believers, I'm not going to make or end relationships with fellow believers based on whether or not they too hold that same conviction. At the same time, those believers who have no conviction to obey God's dietary laws need to honor my conviction should they invite me over for a meal. It's a two-way street. And never should we get into battles with one another over kosher eating. And Paul says in verse 18 that if we will go forward with this type of an attitude, then this is the proper service of worship to our Messiah because it pleases God. And it also allows others to see us as Messiah's representatives in a good, proper, loving light that well represents our Savior. It can only be that the issue of food and drink was a very contentious one among the Roman congregation. Remember, it's a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And this is why Paul spends so much time on it. And Paul says that of all things not to battle over, it's this. But then we're thrown another typical Paul curveball in verse 20 when he says that all things are clean and indeed he uses the Greek word for, for clean, kathartos, but at the same time no one should cause anyone else to fall away from Messiah due to food. What does he mean here? Now naturally, Western Christianity claims that Paul says that because of Christ, the food laws are now gone. Every edible thing is okay for believers to eat. And yet that doesn't fit with what Paul says here and in others of his epistles. In fact, the wording says that all things are clean. That is, the statement, although it includes food, goes beyond food. Such that it's saying the entire principle of clean and unclean has been abolished as it applies to anything at all. Now, that would make sense because otherwise we have Paul saying that the principles of clean and unclean remain but they apply to everything but food. However, this can't be right either because Paul talks about the need to be cleansed in a number of his epistles. It's a constant theme of his to be cleansed. Why do you need to be cleansed if you're not unclean? Well, one of the more well-known of his statements in this regard is found in 1 Corinthians. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul says, Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of heaven. Now some of you used to do these things, but you have cleansed yourselves. You have been set apart for God. You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, and the Spirit of God. But then there's also this from John the Revelator in Revelation 21 verses 22-27 I saw no temple in the city for Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is the temple as is the Lamb the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's Shekinah gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure, unclean may enter it. Nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those names who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So clearly... And I could quote you many more. So clearly the issues of obedience and of clean and unclean, ritually pure, ritually impure, continue on into the messianic age. And we should not take Paul as meaning that the state of unclean, ritually impure, has suddenly just been abolished. So what does he mean? Well, considering his Jewishness, Considering that he's an educated Pharisee, what he has said throughout Romans, and that he lived during the era of Judaism, tradition, and the synagogue, that I think those several factors are the necessary context for interpreting what Paul means by all things are clean. And he means that nothing is created by God as unclean. God does not create unclean things. At creation, God did not create unholy or unclean substances or creatures or things. Inherently, the physical substance of every created thing is acceptable to God since he's the one who did the creating. We know this because it's recorded in Genesis when we're told that God looked over everything that he, was, he had created. And what did he pronounce it? Good. Everything. However, the spiritual and ritual status of unclean can be and is assigned by God to some things under some circumstances for his own good reasons. This status, however, never changes the physical makeup of a person, of an animal, of an object itself in some magical way. A few minutes ago I read you an excerpt from an ancient Jewish document that essentially said exactly the same thing. So Paul is but stating what was an accepted spiritual principle among Jews that all things are created inherently clean. Even if some are later deemed unclean, therefore unusable, deemed unclean by God for ritual purposes. Nonetheless, says Paul to finish up this section, these issues, what we eat, what we drink, this should not be the cause of making a fellow believer stumble due to religious arguments within a congregation. And since trust is the standard God uses to determine our salvation, then it is on account of this trust and nothing else that we are to make the decision to eat according to the Torah food laws. We should not eat kosher because of being browbeaten over it.
not because of thinking that somehow we are more pious or we get more merit from God for, for doing it. Not simply to conform to the others in our group. However, this same trust that leads us to eat according to God's food laws also compels us to be respectful and loving to believers who don't. Let's get just get a glimpse of Romans chapter 15 before we close today. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We're going to go ahead and just read it all. We're going to speak about it just very briefly. Romans chapter 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1419. So, we who are strong have a duty to bear the weaknesses of those who are not strong, rather than please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor and act for his good, thus building him up. For even the Messiah didn't please himself. Rather, as the Tanakh, the Old Testament says, the insults of those insulting you fell on me. For everything written in the past was written to teach us, so that with the encouragement of the Tanakh we might patiently hold on to our hope. And may God, the source of encouragement and patience, give you the same attitude among yourselves as the Messiah Yeshua had, so that with one accord, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So welcome each other, just as the Messiah has welcomed you into God's glory. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the Jewish people in order to show God's truthfulness by making good His promises to the patriarchs and in order to show His mercy by causing the Gentiles to glorify God as it is written in the Tanakh. Because of this, I will acknowledge you among the Gentiles and sing praise to your name. And again it says, Gentiles rejoice with His people. And again, praise Adonai all Gentiles. Let all peoples praise Him. And again, Yeshayahu, Isaiah says... The root of Ishai, the root of Jesse, will come. He who arises to rule Gentiles, Gentiles will put their hope in him. May God, the source of hope, fill you completely with joy and shalom as you continue trusting so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may overflow with hope. Now I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, well able to counsel each other. But on some points I have written you quite boldly by way of reminding you about them because of the grace God has given to me to be a servant of the Messiah Yeshua for the Gentiles with the priestly duty of presenting the good news of God so that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering made holy by the Holy Spirit. In union with the Messiah Yeshua, then, I have reason to be proud of my service to God. For I will not dare speak of anything except what the Messiah has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by my words and deeds, through the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Yerushalayim all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of the Messiah. I have always made it my, my ambition to proclaim the good news where the Messiah was not yet known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation, but rather, as the Tanakh puts it, those who have not been told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. This is also why I have so often been prevented from visiting you. But now, since there is no longer a place in these regions that needs me, since I have wanted for many years to come to you, I hope to see you as I pass through on my way to Spain and to have you help me travel there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem with aid for God's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia thought it would be good to make some contribution to the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, but the fact is, they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have shared with the Jews in spiritual matters, and the Jews clearly have a duty, or rather than the Gentiles clearly have a duty to help the Jews in material matters. 
So when I have finished this task and made certain that they have received this fruit, I will leave for Spain and visit you on my way there. And I know that when I come to you, it will be with the full measure of the Messiah's blessings. And now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God on my behalf that I will be rescued from the unbelievers in Judah, that my service for Jerusalem will be acceptable to God's people there. Then, if it's God's will, I will come to you with joy and have a time of rest among you. Now, may the God of Shalom be with you all. Amen. Once again, we have to mentally set aside chapter divisions that gives us the sense that the former subject has ended and a new subject is beginning. This is because the first verse of chapter 15 is based entirely on what Paul has previously said in chapter 14. That is, the so to begin chapter 15 means because of all these principles I've just taught you. And Paul says that because of all these principles, we who are strong must bear the weaknesses of those who are not strong. It's important we pick up on the fact that Paul includes himself as part of the strong because he uses the term we. So which side of the kosher eating issue did Paul fall on? The side that says kosher eating is abolished or the side that says it continues on? See, in order to know, we have to look elsewhere in the New Testament to learn about Paul, how he conducts himself. Listen to how he describes himself as he stands on trial before King Agrippa. In Acts 26, 1-5, Agrippa said to Shaul, Paul, you have permission to speak on your own behalf. And then Shaul motioned with his hand and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you today that I'm defending myself against all the charges made against me by Jews. Because you are so well informed about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know I have lived my life from my youth on, both in my own country and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. And if they are willing, they can testify, I follow the strictest party in our religion. I have lived as a Pharisee. Pharisees were super strict about Torah food laws even adding some burdensome traditions that made it even stricter. As a Pharisee, Paul, of course, followed their dietary rules. And earlier in Acts, when Paul was on trial, standing before Governor Felix, he said this about himself in Acts 24.14. But this I do admit to you. I worship the God of our fathers in accordance with the way, which they call a sect. I continue to believe everything that accords with the Torah, everything written in the prophets. Paul believes everything written in the Torah. Food law is a part of the Torah. Was Paul a liar? Did he believe everything in the Torah, but he only obeyed some of it? If that's the case, I don't know why we would listen to anything this man has to say. And earlier yet, Paul said this, Acts 22.3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city and trained at the feet of Gamaliel in every detail of the Torah of our forefathers. I was a zealot for God as all of you are today. Paul was either lying or he was telling the truth in these three statements and a few others to the same effect. He either remained a highly trained, strictly Torah-observant Jew, or he was being a hypocrite and a phony. Which, by the way, some of the early church fathers say he was deceiving others 
by living one way and teaching another way, but he can be excused for it because he did it for the good of spreading the gospel. Paul, of course, was no hypocrite, as he went to great lengths to prove when he went to meet James, Jesus' brother, in Jerusalem, and he went into the temple to pay the vow offerings for him and several other men. Paul followed the Torah food laws as a believer, and as he said to begin Romans 15, he, as part of the we, is what he considers the strong. So clearly by Paul's definition, it is the strong who eat a kosher diet, not the weak, as is often taught. So in continuing the theme of the strong and the weak, Paul says it's self-evident that it is the strong who have to bear the weaknesses of the weak. I say self-evident because if the weak could bear their own weaknesses, they wouldn't be weak. He adds in verse 2 that we should please our neighbor and choose our actions according to what's best for him. Now this, of course, is just another way of stating love your neighbor as yourself. That principle that Yeshua and the rabbis say the entire Torah stands upon and upon which Paul has based most of the book of Romans. See, here's the thing. While what Paul is calling for is for the strong to take the responsibility to lovingly care for the weak, it is also a test of faith for the strong. It is anything but human nature for the strong to want to help those weaker than themselves. Rather more typically, the strong want to dominate the strong wants to impose their ways, their doctrines upon the weak. The strongest man who ever lived was Yeshua. He spent his entire life being a servant to others. Giving every ounce of his precious life for the good of the weak. He is our example. As he said, he came to minister to the sick, not to the healthy. Just as Jesus shouldered our burdens, for we are all weak in comparison to him, the strong among us are to help shoulder the burdens of the weak among us. And let's remember, we're talking here about the strong in faith versus the weak in faith. Those who have more trust are to help those who, for the time being, for the time being, have less trust. Nonetheless, the weak do have trust. The weak are saved because of that trust, and they are just as valuable to the kingdom of God as are the strong faith. We'll continue with chapter 15 next time.